0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. As always, I am your host, Gregory Carter, and with me again is my friend and co-host, Ceci. Ceci, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Greg. How are you doing today?
0: Great, thanks. Also excited. For the last 12 months, I've been trying to get our guest onto some forum to talk about leadership, human factors, etc. So I'm glad he's been able to join us today. Uh, Today we have Martin Bromley with us to discuss a range of topics. Martin, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Thank you very much. I'm really good today. Thank you.
0: Excited about this and, and really looking forward to it, as I'm sure you are too, Ceci.
1: Me too. Yes, he is such a force for patient safety and patient advocacy. So I'm really excited about today.
0: Welcome, Martin. Usually we start this podcast just by getting to know you a little bit better as the guest. So I tend to ask an open question. Who is Martin Bromley?
2: So Martin Bromley is a, a 57-year-old bloke uh, who's feeling his age at the minute. Uh, my life has really been around aviation. Uh, when I was a kid, I was passionate about flying, but I never got to do it. Um, I started to fly a little bit when I I. Kind of got myself into a sensible career, and I could earn some money to afford to fly, and ended up then uh, becoming a professional pilot, uh, airline pilot. Uh, I'm now uh, a training captain for a major UK airline, uh, so I'm very lucky. I do that, um, and that keeps me really happy. I get to fly a little bit for fun as well, uh, and apart from that, I was, I suppose, the latter stages of my life has been defined by. The events of two thousand and five, uh, when my then wife Elaine died during an attempted routine operation.
0: Well, that's that's good to hear, and you know I think a lot of good has come out of that, and we look forward to to hear more about it. Usually, the next thing I do is go through some quick fire questions. I'm so going to start with the myth that all pilots must have twenty twenty vision. True or false? False. Ooh, right. Okay. What is the one thing you enjoy most about being a pilot?
2: The responsibility.
0: Touché. As a pilot, what is the one advice you could have to a surgeon that can help the career move forward?
2: For me, it would be something about mental rehearsal. It, uh, making sure you are aware of the, the, the opportunities to practice your, your craft. Um, and it's, that kind of continuous professional development is so important.
0: And finally, I've always wondered, so we as surgeons sometimes have music playing in our theatres. I've always wondered if pilots have music playing in their cockpit.
2: Well, I've heard that some places in America people install music uh, for long flights, as in you know, general aviation, uh, but it's unheard of in this country. It's unheard of around the rest of the world, and uh, certainly would never happen in a in a in a commercial flight deck. You're just too busy.
0: Really, okay. And two more questions. One, if Utopia, okay, the the rules have changed in in Britain and Europe. Now you are allowed to pick whatever song you want for that one uh, special flight of yours. What would it be?
2: Gosh, that's a really hard question. It would probably be, right uh, and this is a, for me, and my friends would uh, will, will never forgive me for saying this. I, I love rock music. I love pop music. I love country music. I love all sorts of music. But the one sort of music I can't stand is classical music. But it would be a, a classical tune by Bach, and that would be air
0: all right very good uh so you've managed to obsess and please sassy in the one conversation by not liking classical music yet playing it and now she's delighted great britney spears or blake shelton
2: uh ooh, blake shelton
0: cliche very good and final question do you get to pick where you fly to
2: you have a little influence, but as a general rule, no, um, I get given a, a roster. I can. What happens is I can bid for work. I can say I want to fly to Edinburgh, for example, uh, and I might get one trip to Edinburgh in a month. But, but the reality is much of it is fairly random for me.
0: I keep saying last question, but uh, you know I'm enjoying this quick fire round. So I'm going to keep going. Favourite destination that you've been to?
2: Uh, Ascension Island down in the South Atlantic. Very, very lucky to have gone there back in 2002, 2003, when the people I was flying for at the time were, were working the uh, air bridge for the military to uh, fly down to the Falklands. I didn't get to go to the Falklands, but I got to go to Ascension Island. And Ascension Island is, is, a, is like a tropical island that's all built around you, basically. Okay.
0: And did you get to stay there for a week? Uh, no, and I didn't was- get the return flight.
2: <laughs> Uh, no, it was 48 hours, and then I oh, went back right. a few weeks later for another 48 hours.
0: Okay, and my truly, truly final question on the quick quickfire round, what is the one myth about human factors that you've heard of that you want to dispel? Uh,
2: so human, the, the myth is that human factors is all about our behaviours. Um, and uh, as I'll give, hopefully get a chance to later, I'll explain that that is a part of it, but it's a much wider um, science than that.
0: Excellent. Well done. You have handled that so well for having no clue as to what I was going to ask you. So that's great. So moving on a bit to sort of your journey to how you've got here. Obviously, you alluded to it a bit about the tragic events of 2005 and what happened to Elaine. I think it's important that we give you an opportunity to discuss that from your point of view as to the events around that and, and what's come of that and how that's led you to the Clinical Human Factors Group and all the good work you're doing there
2: so uh, Elaine was uh, Elaine and I had been married for a little while. she was thirty seven two young children, Victoria and Adam, and uh, she was generally in very good health but had had some sinus problems so uh, long story short, she was booked in for a procedure, a functional endoscopic sinus surgery, and a septoplasty to sort the problem out basically um, She was admitted uh, uh, on the 29th of March, 2005, Um, normal thorough pre-op assessments, etc. We left her at 8.30 and uh, I got a phone call a a couple of hours later to say that uh, she wasn't waking up properly. She'd been transferred to intensive care. And in in essence, she was still unconscious. Uh, She ended up in a medically induced coma and sadly died 13 days later, having never regained consciousness. So uh, I, I was hoping that, you know, well, I was trying to build my life back together. But, but during the middle of that, I kind of had conversations about doing some form of review of a care. I, I genuinely didn't think anything was wrong, uh, but I thought that maybe there'd be some lessons that could be learned. And that was something that would be normal for me as a pilot to expect some form of in, investigation to learn not to blame. Uh, and when I was told that that wouldn't happen, that that wasn't normal at the time, Uh, then uh, I I kind of had a few more conversations and luckily with the support of the head of the intensive care unit, uh, I got an independent review done and uh, then going into an inquest, we we put together a lot more information basically on what had happened. So um, uh, without going through too much of the detail, in essence, uh, the team were technically very able. Uh, I say the team, initially it was an anesthetist who had 16 years experience and was very well regarded by his colleagues. Uh, I met a colleague of his 10 years later who said to me that when she'd worked for him, uh, if she'd needed um, an anaesthetic, she would want him to do it. Uh, The uh, ODP was very experienced in her role, um, but then as things uh, deteriorated in what became a can't intubate, can't ventilate, um the uh, a number of people came in another experienced anesthetist the ENT surgeon joined them now of course he was um the sort of person you would want to have in a room if you were going to do some form of surgical access uh, which is the route that ideally we would have probably have gone down uh, and he had 30 years experience he'd actually set up the ENT department Um, And then amongst the other staff who came in, uh, another two of them were experienced. uh, And and there was only one person in the room who was relatively inexperienced. Uh, But in essence, the doctors uh, had become fixated on attempting to intubate. And uh, as opposed to kind of looking at uh, following the the kind of can't intubate, can't ventilate protocol. There was a lot of fiddling around with the attempts to intubate. uh, But under the stress, they... Probably became fixated uh, on intubation being difficult and trying to to force the intubation and trying various tools to get the intubation done. But in effect, Elaine was starved of oxygen during this time 40% oxygenation for over 20 minutes by the time they got it back up to 90%. So, um You know, here's a technically competent team, a very technically competent team in an operating theatre with no equipment missing that would have made a difference. Um, But uh, disaster still happened. And uh, I suppose as I sat back and I listened to the independent review and as I listened to everybody at the inquest, there were some real things that that stood out. You know, the anaesthetist said that he lost control of the situation. And in fact, in the inquest of those, uh, of all the people in the room, they all said somebody was in charge at a different point and it was different from each other. Um, The uh, situational awareness, their understanding of what was happening, what it meant, and what needed to happen wasn't shared amongst the three doctors. Um, The communication seems to have dried up. But when you, when you listen to the uh, two ODPs and the two recovery nurses, Um, They were well aware of what was happening and what needed to happen and tried to intervene. The senior ODP had already asked for a tracheostomy tray to be brought in, although uh, there was a quick kiss in theatre. When she came in, she announced to the doctors that she had the tracheostomy tray and they just ignored her. Possibly they were just under too much stress to even hear. And we know that when you get stressed, you lose that sense of hearing often unless it's immediately relevant. Um, But but also another one of the team, one of the recovery nurses came in, saw Elaine's color, saw her vital signs instinctively. She knew that this was serious, went out, phoned intensive care, came back in and announced the doctors that uh, a bed was available. And to quote from the inquest, they looked at her as if to say, what's wrong? You know, you're overreacting. So so it wasn't just about the three doctors it wasn't just about the the uh, principal anaesthetist and the surgeon who played a much bigger role in this i think than people recognize in his attempts to help Uh, but it was much more about the whole team and recognizing that people on the outside the more junior people if you like were the ones that perhaps held the key to solving this and and despite their best efforts never got a chance
0: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think we're all in- incredibly grateful, actually, to to have you share that story and um, you know a lot of the the learning that, that that will come from it over the last fifteen years. As I said earlier, a lot of good has come from it. But two things that I picked up from that was your point about learn and not blame. And that's the one thing that you know the surgical community and and really healthcare in general, but other sectors can learn from, and and we should uh, learn from because it's it's really about how do we prevent this from happening again, as opposed to whose fault was it. But from your point of view, what is the one key lesson that should have been learned from that event?
2: I think for me, it it was, and I think you can draw many things from it, and I think that's very important. When I got involved in healthcare just trying to understand the world of healthcare, people talk to me about root cause analysis and you've got to find the root cause. And you can argue the root cause of Elaine's death is is many and varied, but the reality is it's all around this science of human factors. It's around around the behaviours of the team in the way those behaviours should have helped them to solve the problem but actually hindered them it was hard for them to come up with the right solution Um, and that's uh, and and there are many things about that so really for me the lesson is around that and more broadly it's it's about systems and behaviors so the, the specific behaviors on the day didn't help some tried to help but it's also about the system that meant those behaviors were the normal thing So, for example, um, there was no pre-briefing amongst the anaesthetist and his colleague about, you know, how they might handle some emergencies or some difficult situations. Uh, there was no kind of n- normal behaviour whereby you would get a an ODP or a, a recovery nurse or somebody like that speaking up. That was just not the way things were done. The behaviour of the surgeon uh, was uh, discussed during the inquest. And the, the surgeon probably had quite a big influence on what was going on in terms of his um, relatively high position in the hierarchy but i think it's easy to look at his behavior during those 20 25 35 minutes but what's more relevant is his behavior in the preceding two three four years because if if he's the sort of person who does not appreciate a more junior person speaking up who, who does not thank them who does not encourage them then under stress they're really unlikely to do that so I think there's, there's there's lessons here about the systems that people live in day to day, and also about the behaviours they exhibit. and And although today very relevant to what we're talking about, which is the operating theatre, those lessons actually are applicable across healthcare. Whether you are uh, in a mental health unit, whether you're in a GP's practice, uh, or, or or whatever you're doing.
0: Yeah, and and I think uh, in addition to that, it's relevant in all, in in a lot of other high stakes sectors, not just healthcare. I think everybody has something to, to learn from that. This has brought you to the Clinical Human Factors Group. Just tell us a little bit about the group, how it was set up, what it aims to do, and some of the good work that you've achieved in the last 15 years.
2: So back in 2005, I'm just trying to get my life together. I'm trying to, I've got two young children, you know, who are five and four to bring up, I want to get back into my job. And um, so I wasn't terribly interested. It sounds a strange thing to say, but I think mentally I detached from the investigation, etc. But, but you know, I'd, every so often I'd have a, a bit of time off and maybe I'd, I'd get in touch with a, a doctor I knew or something like that. And I'd say, This is what's happened. You know, what do you think? And they'd say, Well, I don't know. You you need to talk to this person here and that person there. And and gradually, over two years, I built up quite a big um, list of people. And these were uh, doctors who were passionate about human factors already. These were surgeons. um, These were anesthetists, and and these were also academics and policymakers. Um, And in the end. I looked across aviation and I thought, well, how did we how did we bring human factors into aviation? And uh, certainly a lot of the behavioral stuff was brought in um, really in the kind of 70s, 80s and 90s. And there was this human factors group that formed informally. And I thought maybe I should do the same. So I, I kind of phoned up the Department of Health and said, I've got a list of 80 people. If you know, if I bring them together on a day just to talk about human factors I don't know what's going to come out of it but will you pay for the room and they said no so I thought okay I'll do it myself then (laughs) in the end they did pay for the room the night before they phoned me up but what happened was we got I think in the end about 45 people and these range from you know the real experts like uh, Professor Rona Flynn from uh, University of Aberdeen who's also a, a, an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, we got uh, trust chief execs, we got uh, doctors, we got nurses, we got policymakers in the room, and everybody just shared basically what they were doing in healthcare. And what was evident was that there was a lot of stuff going on, but it was in really tiny silos. Now, I'm going to probably shock you by what I'm about to say, um, but, but about this period... I, was, I, I got to know this uh, academic surgeon and he'd written a book about patient safety and uh, it had been peer reviewed. And um, one of the reviewers introduced his review by saying, as a junior doctor with no special interest in patient safety. Now, at the time, that was a quite normal thing to th- there's nobody would have seen anything peculiar in that right now. Yeah. I, mean, I can see the look on your faces and, and listeners yeah. to video on there. That seems absolutely shocking, but at the time that was quite normal. So, so we had these little silos, you know, of these people working on their own little projects around human factors, um, but they weren't linked together. But not only that, the, 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 the kind of, the kind of mindset in healthcare was that patient safety was, was some kind of minority, sport almost. It was something that wasn't relevant. It was of academic interest only. And it was really bizarre. And uh so so there was not only did we have to bring people together, but we had to get a wider message out. And so really what I did is I said to everybody, so what do you want to do? And they said we should form a group. So I said, fine, who's going to run it? And nobody spoke. So I said, I suppose I'm <laughs> going to do it myself. So we set it up. We set it up as a charity just to help us manage any kind of to pay expenses for people. But we couldn't do any more than that. Um, And and in reality, we've you know, I've 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 been involved now in in, in both chair and trustee of the charity on and off for 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 13 years. And I I don't receive any payment from it or anything, as indeed do none of the trustees. Um, But what we have done is we've we've managed to get a message out and we started really just to promote human factors in healthcare. But there's been a number of things that have been important to do that. So the first was, you know, when Elaine died, I kind of assumed that it would be easy to share her story, that there would be official mechanisms for doing that, that there would be an accident report that you could read online. And, And that just wasn't how things were done and it was really hard if i typed into google i'm not sure if we had google in 2005 but whatever we had then probably probably bing or something like that uh, we type it in and and it would i you know anesthetic instance for example or or death in surgery and it really wouldn't bring anything back so i kind of thought this is strange so the, so the first area we started looking at was why is that and and why is patient safety just an an academic Thing that's nobody's really interested in, and the answer was is that there was no language of disaster. Uh, So Liam Donaldson wrote in his uh, uh, 2000 uh, 2000 report, an organisation with a memory. He wrote about how healthcare needs to learn not from the accidents, but from the the kind of low lying things, the the um, near misses. But you can't learn from near misses if you don't understand the language of disaster. So I'll give you an example of that. We, one of the little projects we did in the charity was we, in cooperation with the Department of Health at the time, is we, we were allowed access to some never event reports. So these, and we focused just on wrong site surgery, just as an example, and we looked at eleven incidents. Or I should say, an academic colleague of mine did looked at eleven incidents, just to see what were all the things that were happening that might have contributed. And what they found was not necessarily this is the root cause of all of them, because it was always different. But what they found was the things that often appeared more often than another. So, for example, the factor most commonly involved in a wrong site surgery was failure to mark the surgical site in four out of the 11 cases. So this was it was marked, but maybe with a biro because they didn't have the right tools. It were, you know, there's all sorts of things. Often it was about not having the correct marker pens available. So what it says is if you don't mark the surgical site properly, it doesn't guarantee you're going to have a disaster. But what it's saying is actually that's one of the really big risk factors now that we need to be aware of. And this sort of stuff people just weren't aware of, uh, you know. And when you understand that, you suddenly think, right, well, this is a big deal now. So when you're arguing with the finance department about the fact you haven't got the right marker equipment, uh it, it suddenly has a difference when you're the chief yep. executive looking at saving money it makes a big difference and when it makes uh, to a surgeon or to a clinician this suddenly has some meaning so we didn't have that language so i wanted to kind of push for investigation and you've talked about other high reliability industries uh, and that's absolutely the case, Greg, because we've got to look across not just aviation, but all of them and say, what are the things they do? And really, as a charity, that's what we've tried to push. So over the last you know, 13 years, we've seen the establishment in England of the Healthcare safety and in- investigation branch, uh, which has been really important. And I know Scotland has been looking at an equivalent. We've also got one now in Norway, which is good. Uh, we've seen the the much more common, the term human factors is now much more commonly used. You know, you wouldn't have done this podcast, you know, 15 years ago because people would have said, what on earth is that about? Nobody cares about this. It's not relevant. Whereas now people say, yeah, it is relevant. And the fact that you guys are on here now is really, really important because it says, actually, this is of interest. We've now got, the in again, in England, I'm afraid, only in England, there is a, a patient safety syllabus, which has been developed by Health Education England. Human factors is a major part of that. So all these things are an indication that we're moving in the right direction, but never underestimate how massive healthcare is and, and how complicated it is. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of work to do.
0: Right. And, you know, you, you listen to all of that. You listen to the enthusiasm and, you know, the inspiration that you've become from uh, human factors, but also just generally improving patient safety, healthcare, and being a patient advocate. And I think it's, you know, it's tremendous. You know, out of the darkness of 2005 has come a ray of sunshine and and light in yourself and the work that the group continue to do. It's also interesting to note that some of the things that you talked about that happened there, you know, Cecil and I would listen to his modern day surgical trainees or, or doctors and think, how the hell did that happen but some of the things you say we still recognize as ongoing so although there's been a lot of improvement i think there's still a ways to go and you know whatever we can do on this podcast to help promote the message of the group we will continue to lend our support to that so thanks for sharing that
1: yes thank you so much um it's interesting The video that you produced, which I'm sure has been seen by millions of people, not only in the healthcare industry, but in other organizations worldwide, was one of the first videos that was shown to me as a fledgling medical student back in 2000 and something. I'm not going to say when because I'll reveal my very old age. But I remember looking at it with such horror at the time. And it's quite interesting that As my training and as as my medical journey has evolved, I've seen human factors pop up more and more often. And I think that's testament to the work that your group has been doing and the fact that you were so open with your story and with your experiences. But um, given all that, a question to you, were you scared at any point in time or felt like this was something bigger than yourself at any time in your patient
2: safety journey? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I think I was—I got to about two thousand and six, and I got to there. there was an organisation at the time called the National Patient Safety Agency, and I'd been speaking with with them uh, about how I thought I could take this forward, and, and, and they didn't really offer any suggestions, but they did have this chap uh, called Peter, who was in charge of I think what well, they called it, patient engagement. And he had a very blunt conversation with me because he knew that I wanted to start telling my story, uh, just a routine operation. The video was just around the corner for being made. And he said to me, you know, he said, Martin, you'll talk about this stuff and everybody will want to hear from you for a couple of years and then they'll kind of lose interest. And he wasn't being nasty. You know, he was he was being really Clever in what he said. And I thought about this and I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually. And that's really where the idea of the group came on, because I'm not an expert. You know, I I use human factors, if you like, in my day to day work, uh, just as, as you do, Sessie and as, as you do, Greg. You know, it's just part of my work, but I don't really understand it beyond that. So what I needed was people to help me. Um, And that's why I started to kind of think about bringing these people together. You know, I needed academics. I needed doctors and nurses and allied health professionals. I needed, you know, trust chief execs. I needed policymakers to understand this stuff. Um, and, And, you know, I suppose all I have done over the last kind of few years has been like a a figurehead, a a facilitative leader. Um, The reality is the expertise is out there uh, amongst the the, the clinical world and amongst the human factors world. Um, But I don't think I've, I don't think I've, I think I've been frustrated at times. I think I've been um, uh, irritated at times but i've i've never lost that kind of hope really that you know if you look at any any campaign of any sort you always you know it's always too much it's always impossible but it never is you know you can if it's right then you will get through and and i know that you know human factors is a well established science it has an enormous impact on the success rate of aviators of oil rig workers whatever and I thought you know this is so this is so obvious to me even if I don't really understand it in healthcare. so I suppose I've always kept that faith if you know what I mean if that's what you call it.
1: That's amazing and I think what you described there one thing I've picked up on is an aspect of human factors which is knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and the ability to work well within the team. I think something that surgery has maybe suffered from in the past is that typical surgeon's ego where you are God and everyone else is just there to serve you but I've seen at least in my practice a shift towards having people of different abilities and different skill sets working together as a team for the patient who really should be the centre of what we do. Um, Can I ask, in, in terms of culture change in the NHS, obviously when your wife died, you went through an investigative process. Have you seen that process evolve as a result of all the human factors work that has been done over the years?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, as I say, initially, it was all about root cause analysis uh, was the kind of way. And actually, there was a lot of stuff because, as I've already told you, how patient safety just was of a minor interest. A lot of things happened that were just shrug of shoulders. And that's how it is. That's the way things are. You know, uh, what uh, Professor Sir Bruce Kehoe calls the acceptability of harm. And he tells a lovely story about how he was challenged once about this, that a particular surgical procedure uh, had a, I can't remember, the, the 12% of patients would die during this procedure or die after it. And um, he was questioned by a journalist about why is it 12%. And, and he started to give his answer, his stock answer, well, because it's of this and that. And, but inside, what he was thinking to himself is, actually, why is it 12%? And and a good example of is is probably something like healthcare acquired infections. That um, that you know back you know ten years ago, twelve years ago, healthcare acquired infections were kind of just what happened. You go into a hospital, of course it's you know, you know it's uh, you know they they kind of can't help but catch diseases and catch problems and viruses and all that sort of stuff in a hospital. But actually, there is a a strategy, there's a science to reduce it. And so, uh, you know, the the, the rate of healthcare acquired infections dropped significantly over the last 10 years. And it's just the same way with any other form of kind of patient safety, if you know what I mean, there is a science behind it. We don't always understand the science, because some of this is still really new, but we can actually make a difference. Um, And I think I think that's kind of a really important thing. Now, actually, I'm just saying, did I answer your question though, Ceci? That's what I'm just going (laughs) through my head at the minute. Um, I think you you did in a sense.
1: um, Maybe we can flip it on its head and make it a bit more personal. Did you have any avenues back in 2005 to report what happened to your wife I know you, you said you kind of googled around it or searched around it but was there a formal complaints process that you could go down or was it very informal and if there wasn't how does that compare to what's going
2: on now sorry yeah so I think that I mean you had PALs, patient liaison uh who I'm not sure at the time what they quite did if I'm being honest they were nice people but that was it I, and and I, the the honest answer is I don't think there was now maybe there was I'm sure there there is you know the NHS has a has an organization for everything so I'm sure I'm sure there was but I'm I'm just not aware of it I think what's different now is we've discovered that investigation is a is a is a is a science so I think what's probably to kind of go back partly to the last question is that what's different now is that is that when there are triggers so we have for example never events and you can debate the usefulness I'm not convinced it is a useful title but at least it's a trigger at least we know that it needs um, some form of investigation and so there is a process which is applied more often. And there are human factors experts who are involved in the world of investigation. And some places do it really, really well. Some places probably don't do it that well at all. Um, But there there is an outlet now to raise concerns, whether it's whistleblowing, there's an outlet for concerns if it's just on an incident there are reporting systems that we've the reporting systems have a long history in the nhs particularly and the nhs probably reports more incidents than any organization in the world i'm guessing um but the quality has been quite poor, I think, and perhaps not so useful. And that's down to your own education, if you know what I mean, as a, as a doctor. If you don't understand this stuff, you won't see it. If you don't understand the idea that, of hierarchies and egos, if you, you just accept that's what it is, you wouldn't see it as an incident, as a patient safety incident. Whereas, you know, if you were to witness now a, a surgeon arguing with a, another surgeon and about to go in and do their procedures, you'd be thinking, actually, this could be serious. This could cause a problem, you know. So I think I think things have changed. Um, I, I think we still and at a political level, I think people conflate complaints and incidents, Uh, And I was asked, I attended um, a a parliamentary select committee review into patient safety a number of years ago. And I was asked by one of the MPs uh, my views on the complaints procedure. And I, I, I gave him a fairly hard time about it. I said that the complaints procedure is not relevant. You know, if I go to a shop and buy a sandwich that's out of date, that's a complaint. Okay, but when somebody's died, when my wife has died, I don't say I want to raise a complaint about my wife dying. And and the example I gave, I said it's like having an accident in aviation, an aircraft crashes, and uh, and the companies sitting around afterwards looking at the wreckage, saying, "Well, let's wait to see if anybody complains." I mean, it's it's a bizarre. And I think where I would like to see things go, Ceci, is that I would like, as opposed to at the moment, a lot of patients will raise concerns, uh, but I would like to see more of that come from the from the clinicians themselves. So to say, you know what, everything worked out fine, but I'm not happy about how we did that. So I'm going to raise it as a report and I'm going to raise it or or whatever. That would be where we'd like to go, I think, uh, where the professions themselves say, no, this, this isn't right. We can do better. But it goes back to what Greg was saying about this kind of blame culture. While you have a blame culture, it's very hard to do that. And I think it's absolutely right that, that we focus on trying to get a just culture in healthcare because when we get a just culture, these sorts of things can start to happen. And we're still we're still a long way down the lines uh, from getting there.
1: I'm really glad that you said all all those things. Um, I know certainly as a junior doctor, I have been guilty sometimes of thinking about practicing defensively, because of fear of complaints, because of fear of litigation. And um, I have... Very recently, been reading a book which um, I know you contributed to, Matthew Saeed's Black Box Thinking, and he is very much examining very closely organisational thinking and the whole issue of, of complaints. And he puts a lot of insight into, or gives a lot of insight into what happens in the airline industry. How, as you say, you're not kind of just waiting for people to complain; you're scrutinising every single event to see how you can learn from it. And I'm hoping that by listening to you. Our listeners will feel challenged to become reflective practitioners who think about all the things that they do and how they can improve rather than just waiting for something to go wrong and for the patients to complain. So fingers crossed that comes across. Um, speaking of, of books, because I'm a voracious reader, our listeners will know, have you ever thought about writing a book or making some form of formal educational content that can be distributed in medical schools. What do you think about that?
2: Gosh, OK, so uh, okay, I'll let you into a secret then. So uh, I'll let you into two secrets, actually. So the first is that the chari- my charity, the Clinical Human Factors Group, um, we have never deliberately developed learning materials. But with the advent of Health Education England's Patient Safety Syllabus and with COVID, meaning that you, you simply can't get out there and do face-to-face training, we kind of felt it was appropriate to maybe do something around that. So something we are doing as a charity is we are developing at the moment an e-learning package. Now, this is not for the likes of yourselves who've already had quite an extensive career and you've already got a fair knowledge of human factors far more probably than you both realize this is for the the 1.3 million or however many it is ranging whether you're talking about um porters or receptionists or phlebotomists or whoever it might be and it's and actually we're developing this e-learning package it's not you probably won't come across the term human factors in the whole e-learning package It's about thinking about how you behave and how it impacts other people, how you can arrange things to help make it easy to get it right. So it's all about human factors, but we just don't talk about it. So we're in the process of developing that at the moment and with the idea being that it promotes human factors to a much wider audience, which is really important, but B, it will provide a small income stream to keep the charity ticking over. And it will probably be a very small income stream. But, but as I say, the main thing is just to promote human factors to healthcare. So that's the first thing that I've not discussed with anybody before. And the second thing uh, is, yes, I am writing a book. So um, uh. I, um, I started, I've kind of fiddled around with it over the last two years a little bit. And then I think I got to October last year and thought, I really have to, I feel an emotional need to do this. So I'm writing it at the moment. Uh, I haven't got anybody to publish it, uh, but I have been introduced to some people in the literary world, uh, luckily. And I uh, it will be it's slightly autobiographical, but what it will do is it will use my career and experiences in aviation and my uh experiences in healthcare to highlight a range of of human factors things um uh, and i think also personally i think i felt i i felt it was time to do it because i have contributed to a lot of other people's books and i've contributed to a lot of articles and all that sort of stuff i kind of felt actually there's some things i want to say and so i'm working on that now i will probably depending on how long we're in lockdown i will probably kind of get it drafted by the middle of the year and then I can start seriously uh, uh, looking out uh, at uh, where we go from there. So there you are that's two bits of exclusive news for you.
0: That's super exciting I'm going to pick on the second of your two secrets and put you on the spot here Martin. Will you commit to coming on the podcast once you've written your book to talk about it?
2: Of course I will Greg I'd love to. Excellent
0: and the other thing is um, I think listening to a lot of what you said so far the one thing that resonates a lot with me was when you said just culture not blame culture and how we get that culture shift uh, both within the nhs and the wider community i think it would be incredibly helpful uh, obviously you know about our mortality and morbidity meetings that we have and there's been a lot of work being put in to improve that to to move it away from again the blame culture but assessing it as an incident as you suggest as opposed to looking for all the you know necessarily root cause analysis and, and whose fault was it etc and having it as a colleague to colleague debate about what I would have done differently so clearly a lot of work's been done but it sounds like there's a we know there's a lot more we can do and as I said before your group continues to be at the forefront of, of helping us all do that and and we commend you for that.
2: So Greg I think the, the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh has got this anti-bullying campaign And it's interesting observing it from outside because it kind of feels like when I read the the Royal College Centres of Edinburgh literature and that it kind of feels like we're doing this campaign and, you know, it's it's really important. But I don't think they realise just how significant it is that a Royal College is talking about bullying. You know, I don't see a lot of the professional bodies out there doing the same thing. And I think it's, I think, you know... If there was one thing I had to say, which stood healthcare apart from other safety critical industries, it's the bullying that goes on. It's it's almost just like part of the system, and it, it's built around the blame culture. It's become acceptable, and and it's really really not, and it's really so different from other industries. I can't think of an incident I've ever seen or experienced of that in, in my industry. I'm sure it does happen in small pockets, but, but I, and you know, I talk to people in the rail industry and in the nuclear industry and, and they're like, oh, no, I'm not sure I can think of any incidents, but in healthcare, you talk to people and they say, oh, yeah, I've experienced it. Oh, yeah, that last job I left because it was just, you know, the manager really went for me. And you just think, why is this normal? And, and it's so frustrating. So I just think, you know, really, I, I just think it's really good what the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh are doing with it. I just wish more professions, more professional bodies would do the same. I, I do wish that it would be dealt with at an even higher level.
0: Yeah, I know Ceci's desperate to come in, but, you know, I, I commend you for bringing that up. I think that's absolutely true. And part of the reason for that, in my view, will be things like lack of accountability, but also you continue to do what you see others get away with, in in a sense. And I wonder if there is an opportunity or the time has come for us as actual healthcare professionals to spend some time elsewhere. So I wonder if part of your medical training or surgical training will be a stint in aviation, a stint in the likes of... Form- formula one might be a little bit high stakes but you know the car the, the car industry and and you look at efficiency you look at professionalism and you look at other ways of doing things that that we don't necessarily have and how we can learn from that and you know i do wonder if that's one way we can improve things moving forward but i can continue to hope and be optimistic
2: i think i i think that would be a i think that would be a lovely idea if it, if it were possible because i think um I, I think just seeing other industries and even just talking to to your loved ones, to friends and saying, you know, how are things in your industry? How are things done? It, it would be quite interesting to see. And I think one of the, the issues we have sometimes is that most people come into medical careers straight from uh, uh, straight from A-levels uh, or their equivalents in, in the UK. Um, whereas actually when people I think sometimes come in from other other walks of life, maybe having done five years in a, a job doing something. I think sometimes that can also be useful as well. Getting, it kind of increases, increases the diversity of experience that people bring and, um, and that can be useful. But I think you're right. I think this is, you know, this is a big conversation.
1: It is. And um, I feel privileged to be part of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh because they always champion innovation in many fronts. And the anti bullying campaign is one example. And one thing you said, Martin, about how healthcare, it seems almost normal that these things occur. I, I think what Greg has said about maybe taking a step back and exploring other avenues and seeing how it's done in other organisations is a good thing because you stop getting brainwashed into thinking that this is how it's supposed to be. And I know certainly as a female minority in surgery, there's been a lot of incidences that I've brushed off as this is just the way it's done. But it's only now that I'm spending time as a leadership fellow and having the opportunity to challenge some of these norms that I'm seeing that actually it's, it's not how things are done. But that brings me very nicely to one of my last questions If you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about the current NHS, how um, care is delivered or how education is delivered, what would that be?
2: Gosh, I think that's a really difficult. I mean, that's a really difficult question. I think it would be and it kind of ties into what you've just been talking about, Ceci. It's about focusing on what's right, not who's right. I think, as a as a, as a kind of underlying principle, I think that's really important, and I think tied in with probably something in the NHS constitution around just culture. Uh, and and we've had statements from politicians about the importance of just culture, but actually writing it into policy is is uh, which actually has happened in aviation. It's actually a legal requirement uh in european aviation and uk aviation to establish a just culture um and to take the actions to do that and and i think that would be a really important overarching kind of policy step um, i think uh, at more local level if you like i think we need to think about how we how we lead I think as, as, as individuals, as leaders and an individual by leaders, I mean, you you know, you may not view yourselves as leaders, but you are, you you have an influence on people that are more junior in the organization to you, whoever they might be. And I think having a more open and inclusive style of leadership is really important. So it's not about, it's not about knowing all the answers You might know a lot of the answers, but it's that ability to turn to people before you act and say, "Okay, so, you know, how do you think we should approach this? What's your observations? What can you see happening? That brings people in and that can be quite transformational because we grow up as this idea of leaders being very directive and autocratic and and, and, you know, and all these sorts of things. And that's wonderful. And it works in some environments. But most of the time, when you're in really complex situations, as healthcare is, when you're in fast changing situations, as we have been since March or so last year, then you need to ha- Then the real value of an open and inclusive way of leading is very, very important. And that idea of just asking open questions, listening, you know, reflecting back to people what they've said, pausing before you act um they would have made a massive difference i suspect in my late wife's case but they would make a difference certainly in my day-to-day work and i think the other thing i would say sorry i'm going on about your question but i think the other thing i would say is it's about trying to design in some of this stuff i think that's really important making the tools we we have in healthcare easier to use the devices the systems the processes designing those in gosh lots of things i want (laughs)
0: All all great things and all things that will improve patient safety and ultimately improve the outcomes for people who go in for what would either be routine surgery or even the emergency case. There is no reason why we can't see this as the norm as opposed to utopia. So totally embrace that. And I hope uh, some of that is incorporated moving forward. Obviously, we've taken up a lot of your time and we're coming to a close, but I thought I'd give you an opportunity. At the time of recording this, we know COVID is a thing. The pandemic is is raging through. And every day you hear about health boards and trusts who are major, you know, declaring major incidents. And that brings with us a lot of pressure and, and high pressure what one advice would you have around sort of in these pressure type situations, especially what COVID has brought to us, to the healthcare workers out there who are currently under a lot of pressure and also the politicians really and everybody else. What one advice would you have in terms of how we can use some of the learnings of human factors to to help cope with some of this?
2: It's got to be about kind of what I've just said about open and inclusive leadership. Yep. It's, it's Yes, you do have to be decisive but you do it very thoughtfully so it is about stopping listening to those around you asking some open questions before you act and, and, and whether we're talking about you know you, you know in the early days of the pandemic uh, we had uh, patients who were going into cardiac arrest and immediately staff were jumping to act and then halfway through, thinking, hang on a minute, I haven't actually got my PPE in place or anything like that. Unfortunately, you know, you have to start thinking about yourself at the moment, and thinking about okay, before we act on whatever it is, let's just take a moment and let's just ask around. And that applies at the top levels as well. You know, as an organisation, you know, the, the the most senior leaders, whether we're talking about political leaders or healthcare leaders, have to stop. And listen to advice first before they act. You can still be decisive. You can still be quick, but not too quick. And and my experience in high-pressure situations in aviation, whether for real or simulated, is that decide in haste, repent in leisure, is very very true. And, and I give it just a very brief example. It's, it's in my late wife's case. And it is relevant to COVID that, you know, if at some moment when somebody had said, "Hang on a minute, you know, I've got the tracheostomy tray," if somebody, if the anaesthetist or the surgeon had just stopped for a moment and said, uh, "Okay, why have you brought the tracheostomy tray?" Now, in the t- moment they stopped, Elaine would be suffering brain damage, but those five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty seconds might have made the whole difference. And, and just in the same way, that's how people need to be right now, It's just to take those moments, whether you're a theatre manager, whether you're a surgeon, whether you're a, a policy person, it, it doesn't really matter. That's so important.
0: I think that's key. And, you know, early on in my career, Anissa once told me the concept of 10 for 10, and that's the concept of taking 10 seconds that will help you for the next 10 minutes. Or ten yeah. minutes that will help you for the next ten hours. And often I find myself in a difficult procedure stopping, putting everything down, taking ten seconds, where have we got to, where are we going, and what do we have to do to get there? And always certainly right. And I think you're absolutely spot on with that. Martin, listen, we can talk to you all day. We can we can and you know, Ceci, I'm sure will will share the sentiment. It's it's fascinating to to hear from you. It is uh, haven't read a lot about you before before we got a chance to talk. Talk to you and haven't wanted to speak to you for a long time to get this opportunity is like christmas has come over again so thank you very much for your time we love hearing from you and hopefully that book will be a success and we can have you back on to talk about it
2: yes thank you ever so much greg thank you Ceci. i really appreciate uh i really appreciate you having me on it's been really fascinating uh to do this as well so thank you that's yeah. all right um,
0: Ceci, I'm sure you've got some comments from Martin before we close.
1: Oh, no, just to echo everything you've said, um, how wonderful it's been to talk to you. And I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy hearing more about you and more from you in the future as well. So thank you.
0: Thank and you. if there's any comments you have from Martin, remember, as always, you can email in at comms, uh, that's c o m s at uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Martin, always a pleasure. Uh, to the audience, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, uh, stay safe and be kind to each other. Bye, guys.
2: Bye. 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 Bye.